Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, joined by the show's other host, Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Hello, Kevin. And we're very pleased to welcome to the show Eli Clifton, a senior advisor at the Quincy Institute and an investigative journalist at large for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, he recently wrote this excellent, fantastic report, The Unknown Oligarch Fighting for an Endless Korean War. Um, and of course, Korea, South Korea just had a major election uh, that could prove pivotal um, when talking about this oligarch. So it's great to have you, Eli. And obviously later on in the show, we'll get to some of the more recent developments with the Russia-Ukraine war, but it's good to have you. Welcome, Eli. Thanks. And thank you for having me, Kevin and Rania. Uh, so let's let's just start with it. Uh, you've got this story, uh, which we'll put up on the screen so people can see it while you're talking, but um, it's about this the flow of money coming from this oligarch uh, whose name is Annie M.H. Chan. Uh, you can introduce Annie and let people know where she comes from. But you know, essentially, uh, you, you position her as this force in preventing Korea from having peace, from ending the Korean War, which we don't have an end to yet, even though it happened decades ago. Yeah, well, so... Amy Chan's real focus has been, uh, at least what I've been able to observe, has been on the American side of the political debate. That doesn't mean she isn't active in South Korea. I think she spends quite a lot of time there. Um, but what I was able to track was sort of her funding of a, a hub of or a network of groups based in the United States who have been actively putting out messaging, uh, opposing really sort of very, what seemed like pretty hard to oppose legislation about trying to ease tensions on the Korean Peninsula from the from the U.S. side. Uh, some, some of these are as innocuous as, you know, there was some legislation that was going to call for, it was called the Divided Family Reunification Act, which which would have required the State Department to, to prioritize reunifying Korean Americans with family members separated uh, by the Korean War across the DMZ now. And, and that would have included things as simple as helping to arrange and facilitate video family reunions, so like Zoom calls. And, and there were and, and, and organizations which were chaired by uh, Annie Chan and funded by them, as, as I was able to, to detail, ran these really amazing, like fear-mongering advertisements in, in Times Square and in newspapers saying, you know, true peace can only come from true freedom and, and threatened that this, that this uh, uh, legislation would, would ultimately, quote, dismantle the UN command and remove US troops from South Korea. Um, which, which I don't believe this, either of these pieces of legislation were actually pushing for and threatened nuclear war as a result. Um, so I started to track who are these groups, and really there were two important ones. One was uh, the One Korea Network, and the other was uh, KCPAC, uh, which is the, Korea, uh, the uh, offshoot of the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, run by the American Conservative Union, which holds an annual conference in the United States, has done so for many years. And it turned out for the past two years, they, they had also been putting on events in, in South Korea, in Seoul. Um, and that Annie Chan also chaired KCPAC. And those two groups together had been really pushing some, some pretty radical stuff, um, trying to fan the flames of, of, of not just tension between the US and North Korea, but the more I dove into sort of One Korea Network and KCPAC and Annie Chan's work, the more I saw that it, it was also quite frequently pivoting to 
uh, really deep conspiracy theories and and fear mongering about the US China relationship and the South Korea China relationship. Um, sort of the bottom line, as I described it, is that she was trying to fan the flames of great power competition with China. Um, and, and that plays out in a number of ways, um, including with her, her business interests, which, which as, I, as I detailed, included being a board member of, an organ of a company called IP3 Nuclear that uh, says that due to great power competition, the United States needs to help facilitate the export of uh, civilian nuclear reactors around the world to compete with Russia and China in some sort of global energy race. Um, and, and so there was also sort of a, a profit dimension to what she was done, doing. Before I sort of ramble on too long here, I want to give you guys a chance to get in here. But um, the thing that really I find is fascinating here is the fact that she's really not well known. She, she's not a household name in any sort of money and politics coverage. Um, but was she she's worth probably hundreds of millions of dollars. She and her perhaps ex-husband now Fred Chan sold their uh, Los Altos Hills, California home for $100 million in 2011. Uh, she's been involved in, in very expensive real estate deals in Hawaii. She's now based in Honolulu. Um, and I think that she's probably not the only person like this. I think it's a really important topic to look at is that we so often talk about foreign policy in a context of it being uh, you know, a competition of ideas or just everybody sort of wanting the same outcomes, but you know, they're just being some some difference in in, in views on, on what would be a, you know, the best methods of achieving these outcomes. And then you see somebody like Annie Chan. She wants some radical outcomes. She has some wild views. And in many respects, she is shaping the narrative, uh, at least in the far right, uh, about what a hawkish U.S. foreign policy in East Asia should really look like. Yeah, that's pretty incredible, especially that you mentioned, like, how many other people are there like this that we don't know about? Because uh, you're right, it's not a household name. But the business interests behind it are also what's really interesting because it's not just ideological. There's also lots of money to be made here uh, from great power competition with China. But is there, I mean, I know you focus on this one particular person, but are there other people that come to mind when we think about these things? And is it just connected to like, the CPAC types, or does this also become a bipartisan issue where there's also individuals who might be attached to the Democrats as well who are pushing these kinds of things? Well, you know, in the case of One Korea Network and uh, KCPAC, it's obviously very focused on the right, on the Republican Party. Um, uh, Annie Chan's own political giving, you know, kind of tells that story. She, she gave, I think, $100,000 to Donald Trump's reelection campaign, uh, and she was involved in trying to push the conspiracy theories first about the South Korean uh, ele legislative election that happened right before the U.S. election and then after the U.S. election, where she was running the same conspiracy theories about uh, you know, the election being rigged. That was you know, very much her M.O., and I, and I think it's an interesting thing to look at, incidentally, is the cross-pollination of the conspiracy theories about the South Korean election with the, the U.S. election that followed shortly thereafter. Uh, but yeah, obviously there are people who stand to profit um, or who have, um, I, I don't even want to say just profit. I think there's a notion that in any other uh, contested political space that one could point to, be it uh, you know on, on taxes, tax reform, financial regulatory issues, environmental protections, um, uh, social issues such as same-sex marriage or, or, or abortion, people come into it and there's an understanding that folks want different outcomes. 
Um, that's the one thing that people, you know, on both sides of the, let's say, abortion debate could, could agree on if you got them in a room together is that they want fundamentally different outcomes. And that's, that's okay. That's, that's, that's contested politics. Maybe it's even a healthy thing to some degree. In foreign policy, I think we so often um, portray it as being this, you know, it's not just the politics uh, ends at the water's edge, it's that it ends somewhere before that as well. And that there are sort of smart people who, who all share the same notion of what US national interests are, and that they all are pursuing sort of a similar outcome. And I think that somebody like Andy Chan um, is probably um, more symptomatic of the fact that, that that's just not the case. Um, for instance, weapons firms, well, you know what, their interests, and they talk about it openly on their quarterly earnings calls, and we can talk about that a little bit later if you guys want to, um, they openly talk about the fact that, you know, hey, you know, various forms of, you know, conflict in the world are going to be good for them, and that they, and, and in as much as they care about, um, you know, legislation and, and the U.S. government and policy, that they very much want the defense budget to be as big as possible, uh, and that that, because that supports their projects. It's not some, you know, high-minded notion of U.S. national security and a big picture uh, being advanced. It's, it's a narrow interest that's directly connected to their own interests in this. Um, and I think that you see it uh, certainly on both sides. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's a unique quality to the foreign policy apparatus uh, on the Republican side. I think on the Democratic side, you see plenty of activity of, you know, the, the United Arab Emirates gave uh, over a million dollars to, for instance, the Center for American Pro Progress over the years. Um, you know, it's smart actors who want to shift U.S. policy in directions that are beneficial to them or furthering their own interests are gonna play both sides of the political spectrum. I think we're just looking at one piece of it here with somebody like Annie Chan. You mentioned the IP3, this, uh, you said it's a nuclear, did you say it's a nuclear energy company? Yeah. It, their directors, you have them listed here. I'll just go through them. Robert McFarlane, Ronald Reagan's national security advisor, John Keane, a retired four-star general and chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Keith Alexander, I mean, everybody knows, him. Uh, actually, I would say most people might know him if they were following how uh, Edward Snowden had, <laughs> had put him under uh, amazing scrutiny by exposing the documents about the NSA surveillance programs. Uh, James Cartwright, a former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And you have Mike Rogers, who is a former Michigan representative, but also was a, a chairman of uh, a House Intelligence Committee, I believe. Um, he had a pretty good leadership position. So when you look at those individuals, you can see how Chan um, is connected to the people who are the foreign policy elites. You know, a lot of these individuals get invited on the uh, Sunday morning television news programs to talk about foreign policy and, and, and spread their ideas. Yeah. Uh, so you can, you can add to that if you'd like. Uh, but I also note, before we move from your story, that uh, Jared Kushner and Michael Flynn make an appearance in this. Maybe you want to say something about how they end up being connected to Annie Chan. Well, that's right. In 2019, IP3 got in a, a bit of trouble. There was actually a, some congressional investigation into them that was looking at the fact that it seemed as if they were trying to piece together a deal in conjunction with Mike Flynn and Jared Kushner to transfer what would have been potentially sensitive nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia. Um, and soliciting a $120 million, I believe, investment from uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to, to do so. Um, this fell apart, and Annie Chan wasn't involved at that time, but there already was a potential South Korean aspect to that deal, which was that after uh, sort of U.S. regulatory uh, 
interest in this uh, came to light and, and it sort of fell apart from a US side, uh, there was some apparently examination of, of exporting the technology from South Korea instead. Now the South Koreans have a fair amount of, of what is considered to be fairly sensitive um, US nuclear energy technology. They have a large scale nuclear energy program in South Korea. Um, needless to say, the South Koreans, I, I don't think were terribly interested in being involved in some sort of end run around US export controls on sensitive nuclear technology because they had no strong interest in, in, in getting in the middle of something like that. Um, I, I do want to just go back for a moment to people who are involved in IP3 because you brought up the interesting bipartisan issue. Um, Dennis Ross is actually also involved in IP3, still is. Um, he was uh, a member of, of both the George H.W. Bush and the Clinton administrations and the Obama administration, uh, and uh, where he's, he had served as uh, under Obama as a National Security Council senior director for the Central Region, and he was a senior advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Um, so. There you go. I mean, you can see it's it's certainly not an exclusively partisan endeavor. Um, uh, I, I think again, it's foreign policy, and often partisanship is is less pronounced than it is in in many other areas of of of, of policy debates. So, uh, let let let's go to Russia and Ukraine, and who? Suppose, yeah, these two countries that have. Uh, that have held our attention uh, with, with Russia invading. Hasn't broken into the news cycle. I don't know. I don't know what you guys, I don't know what you guys were talking about, but this is all news to me. Go ahead, so, fill me in. What's going on? So uh, for, for, for people like Rania who don't know. Uh, so I know that your think tank, Eli, has been doing a lot of uh, a focus on the way that weapons have been moving into Ukraine. And I thought that uh, given your work that you've done on big war CEOs uh, before this invasion, I, I know that you published a piece back in January that was really priming people for a future that ended up coming, I think, maybe sooner than a lot of people imagined, where many of these companies were prepared to take advantage of this great power competition, whether it be against Russia or China. I mean, I think... When we think about it, we probably would expect, you can debate me if you would want, but it, it probably seems that U.S. versus China is, is more of a thing than U.S. versus Russia. But that being said, the NATO military alliance has ramped up its military hardware shipments and arms shipments to Ukraine. And uh, I think this fits the definition of proxy war. I mean, we're using Ukraine as a country that NATO can back Ukrainian forces inside and to fight Russian military forces that have invaded the country. Yeah, so yeah, I think that there's there's a couple interesting pieces here. And, you know, I would just start with sort of the, the flooding Ukraine with arms. Um, you know, I, I've seen various proposals about, well, you know, what would be sort of mechanisms to to try to maintain some some checks on, on where these anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons go. Um, but I think generally the conclusion this, that, that, that I see people coming to is that the truth of the matter is it would be very difficult to do so, even with the best of intentions by the Ukrainians, even with the best of the intentions of, 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 of the NATO countries that would be transferring those into Ukraine. It's a war zone. I mean, you're not these. And, and the whole strength of these weapons is that they are supposed to be uh, easily portable, uh, easily moved, easily concealed. Um, it's hard to imagine that it would be a simple matter to to have a notion of, of where they are at any given point in time. Um, or that they would be able to continue to track them after an, an, an end to 
um, uh, to the conflict if and when that happens. Um, but as for you know the big war CEOs, you know one thing I've started to look at really closely that that I think is um, it's an insight into the thinking of the weapons firms that we don't always get because very often we just see sort of their slick marketing, right? Which is either showing us how cool their weapons are or suggesting that what they do is just synonymous with U.S. national security interests. And all that veneer really falls away uh, four times a year for each of the companies when they do their quarterly earnings calls, when they talk to their investors and they have to answer questions from uh, investors and fund managers who are on the call. And you know what these people don't want to hear about generally how you know, U.S. national security is best served by these companies. What they want to hear about is what are the growth potential? What are the, the things that the company sees coming down the line that, that may be helpful, maybe harmful uh, to their bottom line? So they talk about the defense budget. Obviously, bigger is better, full stop for them. But they also sometimes talk about, about conflict. Um, and previously, until very recently, they were really quite focused on China. And there was a lot of talk about how great power competition with China uh, really could be used as a means to justify ongoing heightened U.S. defense spending and, uh, and, and support for some of the more expensive projects being undertaken by them. Um, they use it in creative ways. For instance, I, I believe it was Lockheed Martin that was... Uh, Lockheed or General Dynamics that was involved in, in the acquisition of a solid fuel uh, uh, rocket engine company, one of the last independent ones in the United States. And there was regulatory interest in this because it seemed as if by doing so, they would be cornering the market and potentially looking at a monopoly situation for one of the crucial components to building um, most missiles. And the CEO's argument, this was maybe six months, six or nine months ago, was, well, you know, we really have to look through, at this through the, through the lens of great power competition with China because China's military industrial complex is vertically integrated because it's China. And to be competitive, we need to have, you know, some similar qualities here. In other words, that we should be more vertically integrated like the Chinese in order to compete with them. Now, um, you know, their investors thought that sounded really good. I think that a lot of other people saw some problems with that argument, which is, well, you know, we're not supposed to be like the Chinese. We were supposed to be a, you know, a free market capitalist uh, economy yeah. here. And that if you're going to pursue that, that requires some safeguards around things like too much vertical integration. Um, but with Ukraine, they certainly did pivot by the time they were doing their January calls. Um, and uh, Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes um, seemed to be kind of celebrating the potential for, at that time for the, a war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Um, he said, it, he was also referring to the Houthi drone attacks in the UAE. Uh, and he said, quote, we are seeing, I would say, opportunities for international sales. We just have to look at <laughs> last week where we saw the drone attack in the UAE, which have attacked some of their other facilities. And of course, the tensions in Eastern Europe, the tensions in the South China Sea, all of those things are putting pressure on some of the defense spending over there. So I fully expect we're going to see some benefit from it. Um, now, that's not a crazy position to take. It's, it's actually what you might expect a, a, a weapons company to be saying and thinking. Um, I think the real uh, you know, disconnect there, the shocking thing about it, is that we're just not used to hearing them say it out loud. But it's mm. obvious. And they actually say this four times a year when they talk to their investors. Because when they talk to their investors, they're not talking to the American public. They're not talking to the policymakers. They're not talking to the Pentagon. They're talking to the people who want to make a lot of money off of investing in these companies. It really is amazing how our entire economy is so tied up with the profits of people that make things that kill other people. Like it's to such an extreme degree. 
But with what's happening with Ukraine, you know, it's, I wanted to ask you a bit about the issue of a no-fly zone because, I mean, so far on the on the positive side, we've seen NATO officials, we've seen leaders of various European countries, we've seen the leaders of our own country repeatedly say a no-fly zone is out of the question for obvious reasons, right? This, this would lead to a conventional war with Russia, and that would mean a war between nuclear armed powers. It would mean World War III in Europe. Uh, it would likely, you know, mean a lot more death and a lot more suffering and consequences the world over if we're talking about like a nuclear war. And I'm glad that the leaders keep saying that. That said, more and more over the last couple of weeks, we've seen others advocating for a no-fly zone. I mean, I'm not just talking about Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. I'm talking about like weird astroturf seeming protests that maybe are well-meaning, but they also kind of seem like they've got maybe some something more going on there. Like it's like part of some lobbying effort. We see more officials kind of pushing, um, you know, moving the goalposts a little bit to no-fly zone. Uh, and it just it's becoming more part of the conversation. We've even hear, heard terminology like limited no-fly zone. And, and one of the most shocking aspects of this is to see every single day, and we were talking about this before we were recording, but every single day at these press conferences, with whether it's Joe Biden announcing something new or with Jen Psaki, you see these reporters, these reporters that are just like so pro World War Three. Like they're like, why? Why aren't you doing a no fly zone? I think, you know, yesterday we're recording this on a Friday. Yesterday was Thursday. There was a press con the press conference with Jen Psaki where there was like one reporter who just would not let up, who was like, what if Russia commits a chemical attack in Ukraine. Then will you respond? Then will there be a no-fly zone? Then will you respond? And she was repeatedly like, look, I'm not going to tell you our response to a hypothetical that hasn't happened. But like, anyways, I'm just curious your thoughts on all of this. I mean, I know that, you know, it's still too soon to say maybe like who might be funding or lobbying for the pro no-fly zone side of things. But, but what's your take on this kind of like increasing drive towards no-fly zone? Because it does have some uh, familiarity if people remember what happened around Libya, what happened around Syria, uh, some of the same voices and some of the same things taking place with pushing for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important uh, comparison to make places like Libya and Syria. And, and I actually want to circle back to that in a moment. But First of all, say so yeah. I think glass half full. The thing that that I, that I, I think we all that I certainly take some comfort in, um, and I know you picked up on it as well, is that it really has been quite consistent that the Biden administration has to answer these questions. It feels like every single day about why they haven't entertained a no-fly zone yet, and that every single day they have to explain that. Well, you know, if you want to oppose a no-fly zone, you're going to have to start shooting down some Russian planes. You may have to start shooting at Russian air defense, and you know, in doing so, you're you're entering into uh, um, an, an escalatory cycle that is one that has really been central U.S. policy to avoid, which is getting into a shooting war with uh, with Russia, because Russia has, among other things, the largest nuclear uh, stockpile, the nuclear weapon stockpile in the world, and that the threat or potential of escalating against Russia is something that the United States really does not want to do because of just a lot of unknown risks with uh, in ex extremely dangerous ways that this could go. So I think they've done a good job explaining that. I also think it's for once really nice to see that, uh, you know, I think mostly there's been some good bipartisanship on that. You know, people like Marco Rubio have been saying, coming out <laughs> saying, you know what, 
I'm, I'm not going to make this a partisan thing. It, a no-fly zone could lead to World War III, um, which is impressive to see because uh, that has rarely been the case. Um, he's somebody who I think generally wants to come up with reasons to engage militarily. <laughs> and in this case, he actually saying, you know, yeah. this one is too dangerous. And maybe I think that that's really the interesting thing is why is this the case where finally it seems like there's some adults in the room for the most part outside of the press corps and outside of sort of the think tank complex in Washington, where you do see folks that seem to be highly reactive calling for a no-fly zone. But it seems like the people who actually are in policymaking positions here are, are pretty level-headed about it and seem to you know, be very sober in saying that we don't like what's happening in Ukraine, uh, but there are some very, very, very hard limits on how involved the United States can safely be in this without um, really losing control of, of an escalatory cycle that could be you know, World War III disastrous levels. Um, and I think looking at places like, like Libya or Syria are, are good things to look at by comparison. And the reason I think that the United States was more willing and that the and that people in actual policymaking positions uh, were willing to engage with those and, and, and with disastrous knock-on effects later on is that the near-term consequences really weren't that bad. Um, that it's a lot easier to be reactive and say you're taking the high ground and that, you know, that, 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 that people don't like to see suffering on the ground. So you're going to impose a no-fly zone and use American force to make the world supposedly a better place, even if that's not the ultimate outcome. The fact that there's not a near-term uh, disastrous consequence awaiting you um, can, I think, probably actually make you make very bad decisions because it's easy to be reactive and, and, and feel emotional about, about what you're seeing on the ground. What I still think we're seeing is a press corps um, and a lot of folks in the think tank sector who are not used to thinking in this manner. They are used to thinking about a unipolar world where the United States can act militarily with at least no immediate short-term uh, consequences of, of any real serious danger, maybe even no medium-term consequences of real serious danger. Um, and can uh, you know sort of impose its will through through things like no-fly zones, and I think the American public to some degree has also become used to that. So I nearly feel like unipolarity is is an important component of these calls for well, why can't the United States do something? Or it's wrong for us to sit by and not act because people have become conditioned and used to the idea that the United States can act in the world, can act militarily, can impose something like a no-fly zone. And, um, you know, at least in the near term, it might actually be successful. Now, all that gets thrown out the window with, with an adversary like Russia that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. and, and again, I, I am very relieved to see that, you know, it seems as if, if policymakers are, are very, very, very much aware of, of those differences. Uh, but watching it day in and day out, the press corps hammering the White House on this. I, mean, I don't know how many times now Jen Psaki or, 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 or Biden or Anthony Blinken have had to explain why, yet again, another day later, they still had, think that this is really dangerous stuff to be dabbling in. Um, it, it's concerning. And, and there certainly is uh, a community of people who, who don't think about US actions in the world as having really serious consequences that may undermine not just US national security, but global security and stability. Um, and that's what they seem to be calling for day in and day out. So let me just take a moment to really applaud the work that you and others at Responsible Statecraft 
are doing because I think it's opening up space for nuance and for looking at this with with caution and 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 restraint. There's not a lot of cost benefit analyses that you'll hear in coverage of this. I mean, it does seem like you know, as as we're talking about here, when the no fly zone is raised, I noticed that there would be coverage of ceasefire negotiations. And rather than talk about the actual developments with the ceasefire negotiations, whether the parties who are having those negotiations like Ukraine and Russia could find some common ground, could compromise, or assessing how far apart they are and what it's going to take for them to, to get uh, on in a place where they could agree to a ceasefire, rather than having that discussion, they immediately jump to a discussion about a no-fly zone as they're updating people on the ceasefire. And a no-fly zone is an escalation. It automatically removes any possibility of getting to a ceasefire. These flow of weapons into the country, I don't think that the U.S. and Europe would be sending um, multi-billion dollars worth of shipments to Ukraine if they weren't prepared for this to extend on for months. So you hear conversation and coverage about ceasefire. We've seen that these delegations are trying to make uh, some kind of effort to, at the very least, maintain some uh, humanitarian corridors for people to escape who are, are refugees, um, trying to maintain pathways for uh, food, medicine, and other goods to get in. That's something that's going to have to be considered if this is going to go on for a very long time. But that's a really long way of saying that um, rather than have honest conversation about the limits of American power, which is absolutely antithetical to war coverage from any network, any cable news network, you know, you, you, you're the only place that I've seen that has some feet planted in the mainstream that is approaching these discussions that are necessary in this moment to prevent us from doing things like putting in a no-fly zone or, um, or, or to consider the fact that, uh, I'll just read this and then you can respond to everything I just raised there, uh, that you there's this piece over at Responsible Statecraft, I know you didn't do it, but a, a colleague of yours, Taylor Giorno, did something about the black market for arms in uh, Ukraine and at the moment, over 20 countries have pledged or delivered billions of dollars of military hardware to Ukraine. Uh, and you note that Ukrainian people do have a right to self-defense. They get to challenge the Russian military as their country is being invaded. But this flooding of weapons into what the Global Organized Crime Index describes as one of the largest arms trafficking markets in Europe is a recipe for disaster. And you just don't see that contemplated by anyone in the media. I mean, I think that there's this quality that, and again, I, I sort of keep coming back to maybe sort of the end of the Cold War. Americans are used to three decades of not consequence free, but um, certainly being freed of the immediate threat of um, a dangerous hot war with an adversary that has the capability to destroy them has instilled this notion that um, you know US you at the US can shape uh, conflicts that it can participate in them with with very little cost and that again that there are no uh, 
there's no examination of, of second or third order consequences. And I think that what we're seeing here is that there's a lot of people who, who forgot, for lack of a better term, that while the Cold War was not cold in certainly in Latin America, it was not cold in Africa, and it was not cold in Southeast Asia, um, ultimately that there was an avoidance of a hot war between the United States and Russia or between NATO and Russia or Soviet Union. And that lesson I think has been lost. Um, so in that sense, I think that there's also just a push to go ahead in uh, to use the, you know, the full extent of, of US military influence, power and coercion to try to shape the conflict in a way that people find acceptable. Um, but there's also a failure to take the lessons of really at least the past three decades of, uh, of, of the United States operating in a unipolar world and at least the last two decades of endless wars from the United States in, in the Middle East, which is that these, these conflicts where we flood the regions with arms, where we uh, commit to outcomes that we might not be able to actually accomplish, um, have long-lasting long consequences, not just for Americans, but for the people uh, in these countries that we're engaging in. And I think flooding Ukraine with weapons is something that I, I don't yet know what the consequences of that will be, but I can pretty confidently say that we will be talking about this in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, because not all these weapons are going to be used. Not all of them uh, are going to be destroyed. There's a high likelihood they will be uh, circulating around the world um, or in the region even in ways that are completely out of the control of the US government, of NATO, even of the Ukrainian government uh, in as much as it, as it exists after this conflict. Um, there's a lot of things here that are we're injecting into uh, into the world that, that we have no control or very little control over. Uh, and it doesn't seem like, uh, again, that's not to say that we shouldn't be providing some degree of support for the Ukrainians. I think there is, a, you know, a, there is an argument to be made there. There is a debate to be had. But it would be really nice to see that debate include some notion of, you know, if we do X, if we send, uh, you know, billions of dollars of, of, of anti-tank and anti-aircraft weaponry to Ukraine, um, what might be the long-standing impact of having put those weapons out there, taken them out of warehouses, which were under lock and key in uh, a lot of those were in already, already were, were, were positioned in Europe or inside the United States and, and putting them into a battlefield with dynamic conditions, with uh, um, situations that are changing by the minute, if not by the hour. And um, effectively saying, you know, we hope they get used in the ways that we would like to see them used. Um, that's going to have some consequences. And I, I don't think we're really talking about that. And I think pointing Taylor's piece is excellent because it talks about the fact, hey, you know what? The black market for these types of weapons is very real. And, and we just injected a lot of supply into it. There also seems to be this kind of like, I don't want to say it's like 9-11, maybe for Europe, it's like, it feels like 9-11 fever. Um, but I, I say that in the sense of it's like a moment where there's a lot of profit to be made, right? For like the war industry, because moving forward, this is like justifying and uh, this is justifying the existence of NATO. You have all of these European countries that are increasing their military budgets. It's justifying the U.S. increasing its military budget as if it could get any bigger. Um, but on top of that, we're also in this environment of, you know, groupthink, right? where it's like anybody who is maybe pushing against escalation, who's pushing for like potentially compromise, um, 
you know, who's questioning the role of NATO here is being accused of being like a stooge of Putin. And it's just kind of, it's reminiscent of like after 9-11, right? Anybody who's like talking about, well, why, why did this happen? How did we get to this point? Like what, what brought us here was like deemed to be like, you know, pro Osama bin Laden or pro right. Al Qaeda. And the same goes for the drive to the, uh, you drive up to the Iraq war. It's like, oh, you must love Saddam Hussein. It's like, you're like, but wait, maybe, maybe this isn't a good idea. And now we see like, there's this role of these big tech companies that are just suppressing content on behalf of these European governments and the American government potentially. And I guess I raise all this just more to like ask you your take on all that because you saw and you've written for a long time about the way that the post 9-11 uh, sort of war fever was exploited for years and years and even till now by the weapons industry and by these hawks and by these various lobbyists for regime change in this country, in this country, in this country. And so I'm curious if you if you see what's taking place right now as kind of giving new life to all of that. Um, and, you know, even with the kinds of things that you typically follow, like, you know, you, you've covered a lot like the, the hawkish Iran, you know, pro regime change in Iran lobby, for example. Do you see them potentially uh, sort of like running on this war fever in some way? I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I cut you off when you're about to start. No, I mean, I think that's a lot of great points. The, the thing that just keeps jumping out at me in what we're seeing now and this parallels that I think to... 9-11 and to even again, the two decades of wars that, that followed is that we are in this moment where to even entertain the rationality of one's adversary, in this case, Vladimir Putin, is uh, tantamount to saying you're sort of justifying or, or making common cause with him. And I think that's very dangerous because, and I say that obviously I'm biased here. I'm a realist. Uh, I'm also a restrainer. So I think that, that, that you know, the United States, you know, has um, real security uh, needs and interests in the world. I think other countries do too. And I think that there's a potential to have greater stability and peace in the world if the United States and other countries as well, for that matter, um, you know, think very seriously about what are their security interests? How are they going to accomplish that? And assume, and, and, and to accomplish that, you need to assume that other countries in the world also are thinking rationally. It's both so, so you can cooperate with them, but also deter. And in the case of, you know, these conversations around NATO and around is Putin, you know, completely irrational and gone mad, um, you're in very dangerous space when you do that, because you're effectively saying all of the underpinnings of a lot of, um, of, of analysis and thought and strategy that has gone into U.S. Uh, foreign policy is, uh, I guess, irrelevant because now we are suddenly dealing with an irrational actor who can only understand overwhelming military force. This is what we were told about people like Saddam Hussein. It's what we were told about people like Osama bin Laden. It's what we were told about people like the Taliban, um, who ultimately we were unable to defeat and have you know, now taken power back in Afghanistan. Um, and it is not the track record of this type of, of thinking, I, I don't think has produced good outcomes for U.S. national security or for global stability in writ large. Um, and it, it starts to push out of the conversation things like when John Mearsheimer is talking about, well, you know, what role has NATO expansion played in Putin's thinking? Uh, do the Russians see that as a threat? And how might they use that to rationalize and justify um, actions that they might undertake that we do not like? 
um, and that, again, we actually find to be threatening to not just our security, but to uh, you know, global stability uh, and some sort of sense of a geopolitical global order that has uh, some balances in it. Uh, and as soon as you say, well, you know, saying that NATO expansion doesn't play any role in it and, and, and Vladimir Putin has lost his mind, um, where are you really going with this argument? What is the outcome of this argument? Are you saying that we should, you know, do everything we can to, to I don't know, kill uh, you know, the, the president of Russia? Um, where is it you're going with this? And I think you start to enter into some very dangerous spaces where uh, then you can push back, going back to the no-fly zone, for instance. Well, if you're dealing with an irrational actor who's, you know, maniacal to start with, the notion of that there's an escalatory cycle to your actions, you can sort of throw it out the window and say, yeah, but you're assuming rationality here. And if our opponent and our adversary is irrational, then, uh, you know, maybe our actions won't have the consequences that people claim it might have were it a rational actor. Um, just like with NATO expansion and the way those people have been pushed back on now saying that, wow, but if you're saying that, that NATO expansion may cause some uh, concerns and that Putin may find it right or wrong to be a threat to him uh, and to into Russia's national security interests, then uh, then then you're somehow siding with him uh, as opposed to if he's irrational and then you can say, well, you know, it doesn't matter anyways. Um, you're dealing with a mad actor and you have to do everything you can to contain them. So I think it takes you in some very dangerous directions when you start to talk and think this way. And I've seen a lot of that in the media and in the punditry and even in coming out of think tanks in Washington. Um, I think we need to assume that other actors in the world are rational. I think we have to assume that they are sane. That doesn't mean that we are justifying their actions and it doesn't mean that we are siding with them. Uh, it simply means that we need to have a base level of, you know, assumption of human rationality so we can come up with um, rational policies that, that further U.S. interests uh, in, in a manner that, that makes sense. Otherwise, I mean, once you've decided that your adversaries are completely irrational and insane, uh, I don't know how you formulate policy in a way that that, that has anything cohesive to it at that well, point. Well, that's when that's Lindsey Graham gets to formulate policy. When <laughs> that's the that's the conclusion we've reached. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> well, and, and if it's not rational, then what what do sanctions accomplish? Because yeah. you could make the argument that keep piling sanction after sanction, it's not going to have the effect that you're you're hoping for because logically layering sanction upon sanction is going to ultimately make Vladimir Putin and his inner circle back down from this right. invasion. But I get the sense that it's actually making him more um, committed and or more cornered as it comes to this invasion. Like, like once you have nothing to lose, then you've got to complete the operation that you've undertaken. You've got right. to perceive those objectives at all costs. Uh, and so... I suppose I ask you, because you say you're a realist, what space is there for realism right now? Because it does seem like people really do feel threatened by the work that John Mearsheimer has done, yeah. the work that Stephen Walt did. He put out a piece just uh, like no more than like a day and a half before the invasion was launched for foreign policy that raised a number of very important points about how we got to this this brink of, of, of being uh, so close to the invasion and then the invasion did happen. And then uh, George Kennan we have as, as an incredible lion in U.S. foreign policy who had 
spoken about the real limitations of pursuing this agenda of NATO expansion and the risks of ex NATO expansion. And so none of that seems to have been taken into account by the people who are making the decisions in the Biden administration. And I know it's been claimed in the last couple of weeks that they did all they could do to prevent the invasion. But I do find myself very skeptical of that argument that they did all they could do, because all I remember from the last month in February was waking up every day to hear officials come out on television and say Russia was going to invade imminently, and then it didn't happen. And then the next day, they're going to invade imminently, and it didn't happen. And many of us who were trying to recall the lessons of the Iraq war put ourselves in a vulnerable spot as far as our credibility by saying, you know, there may not be intelligence that supports this. And then slowly in the few days before the invasion, the troops had amassed on the border and the pretext was there. They said they're going to send in to provide security for the Eastern Ukrainian republics. The Russian government did. And then before you knew it, a massive military operation was underway by Russia because they felt that they no longer were getting any respect or being treated like equals by the West, I think. They weren't, their, their concerns about the world were not being taken seriously. And so they just said, we're gonna go take care of what we need to in Ukraine. We're gonna, we're gonna do this. We don't care if you like why we're going into Ukraine, but we're gonna go do this and take care of it because we don't need to ask the West for permission to undertake this operation. And the unwillingness to offer any concession to Russia seems to be why we're here and I'm not excusing any of the acts of aggression or any uh, alleged war crimes that are certainly going to be investigated in the next several years here to, to, to try and hold uh, the government to some account, which they should also do to the United States government as well when they commit those crimes in, um, in Yemen by backing Saudi Arabia and, and in Iraq. Uh, but we fought those kinds of investigations. But anyways, it's a long way of saying... What do you say to uh, officials in Biden administration? This is like the last question I have for you. How should we approach these claims by the administration that they have pursued diplomacy, that they've done all they can do? And then the last thing we, 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 you know, we heard this past week from Anthony Blinken, we've sought to provide possible off-ramps to President Putin. He's the only one who can decide whether or not to take them. So far, every time there's been an opportunity to do just that, he's pressed the accelerator and continued down this horrific road that he's been pursuing. But I don't know. I don't know. Am I confused? I don't know what these off-ramps are. I'm not sure what's been presented to Vladimir Putin as a way, because I'm really confused about how this all works, Eli, since we've added all these sanctions. Is how I started this long little dig digression here. These, these sanctions have been added. And I don't know what the, the goal is of all of them, because it seems like at a certain point, in order to unravel this invasion and get things moved back towards a point where you can have negotiations for a ceasefire and a peace deal, you would start to offer as an incentive. If you do this, we'll take this sanction away. If you'll do this, we'll remove this. If you do this, then we would be happy to... And you start to... Well, but it seems like part of the goal of this, uh, and they don't want people to, I don't, I don't think they actually want people in Ukraine to die necessarily, but it seems part of 
the objective on the on the part of the Biden administration is to isolate Russia and not allow it to be part of the world. Well, that certainly is the 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 intended, at least near term, uh, goal of the sanctions. There, there's no real question about that. Uh, and, and I think that you know broad-based sanctions have a, a lot of problems with them, and um, possibly, uh, I mean, among them, obviously, being that you are punishing people who have no agency in in what their government is doing. And, and I don't ever want to downplay the agency that Putin has in this. Uh, I think he has a great deal, um, and I think that we need to look at how our actions and how our um, our, our, our pressuring of him. Um, May shift, may shift his calculus in both positive and negative ways. And I think you kind of uh, mentioned some of those um, policies that have been pursued that, that may have uh, given him the impression that, that this was a rational course of action that he took. Uh, I personally don't agree that it was a good choice of action that he took. I think it's probably going to hurt him a lot more than help him um, in the notion of, of self-interest. But people miscalculate all the time. That doesn't mean that they're irrational. Um, it's just called making a mistake. Um, but as for these sanctions and sort of the, you were starting to say, well, what's sort of the future of realism in this? Uh, I think something we really need to do is sort of bird dog the administration and the people who are promoting sanctions as a tool to, uh, to, to respond to this crisis to say, okay, you've chosen to pursue the sanctions. What is the goal here? What are the sanctions supposed to accomplish? You're supposed, well, in theory, they're supposed to, you know, punish bad behavior and create incentives for good behavior. So what are the off-ramps from this? Are we presenting the Russians with uh, real incentives, presumably tied to dramatic reductions in the sanctions uh, in order to, to, to end uh, their violence? Uh, I, I don't know the ins and outs of the negotiations. I, I don't think a lot of us do. We've been told repeatedly by the administration that they have exhausted every, every diplomatic avenue and that they continue to uh, present off-ramps to, to the Russians. Uh, I think a good response to that is to say, good keep presenting them. You, th th that's something that should never stop, especially once you've highlighted, as the administration has done a really good job of, the dangers of an escalation with Russia. So they should be constantly presenting the off-ramps. And I would hope that sanctions reduction is a component of that. The notion that we will endlessly have these sanctions on Russia, cutting them off from the global economy, um, that's dangerous. That's extremely dangerous. It's the type of thing that that that, that would make Vladimir Putin say, well, you know what, maybe I, my only, the smart thing for me to do here is to escalate further. Um, so I would hope that a reduction in, especially the broad-based sanctions, the sectoral sanctions on Russia are, um, uh, are a major component of the off-ramps being offered. And I hope that those off-ramps are, are connected to really tangible near-term things the Russians could do to de-escalate the conflict involving certainly protecting civilians um, and, and, and reducing their own military presence inside Ukraine. But I think the best thing we can do is to continually say, okay, you said you put the sanctions on because you want X, Y, and Z to happen. Are you presenting off-ramps for those events to happen or, or to cease occurring uh, for the Russians to adopt policies that, that, that are more desirable uh, to, to a lot of folks in the world? Uh, and are there immediate incentives for them to do so, involving immediate reductions in sanctions? Uh, is there something in it for them? Is there, is there a face-saving option here? I think people don't like offering that. They don't like the idea that we need to offer something face-saving to Vladimir Putin. He has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. If we can offer him something face-saving so he will change his course of action, I, I think we should be offering it, frankly. Um, because right now the trajectory is very, very dangerous. And, um, you know, escalating it further, again, as the White House, as even Republicans have been pointing out, 
uh, poses some severe dangers to, to all of us. And, and I do worry that the sanctions, uh, maybe not by the architects of it themselves, but certainly by a lot of the people who seem to be cheerleading them on, uh, seem to be a, a punitive endeavor designed to fundamentally weaken Vladimir Putin uh, so he is uh, you know, either a coup or that he's uh, become so unpopular within Russia that he has to stand down uh, or resign. I think that that's a pretty dangerous outcome to be pushing for. I think that you're, you're, you're engaged in something that by definition could be seen as incredibly escalatory um, and not offer him incentives to take uh, off ramps that are presented in more near term ones. Um, so I think that, yeah, from a realist perspective, we need to be constantly saying, what are the off ramps that have been offered and what more could we do to incentivize uh, uh, them to take those off ramps? Uh, presumably sanctions, immediate reduction in the sanctions would be a component of that. Otherwise, what is the leverage that we're trying to build up? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that this is Neville Chamberlain style appeasement. I mean, that's the, one of the messages in the media that I think has been highly destructive or not constructive to trying to find a way out of this is this idea that like what you're saying with the face saving. Anyways, I'll let Rania get in here. Anything you want to say before we wrap up, Rania? Just that I also think, you know, it's really... Um alarming the i i just there there's this atmosphere of censorship that's like uh taking place and so far it's directed at what they call russia state affiliated media in fact i just saw that someone just sent me a message that youtube is officially youtube has announced it's officially taking down all rt channels all around the world which is actually pretty uh stunning uh on, in many respects but i mean you know the reason i think that this is obviously aside from the issue of censorship, which is very serious is it's, it's alarming that there seems to be no effort to even understand one entire side of this war. And again, that's not to say that their reasons are justified or what they're doing is justified, but in order to end a war, you have to understand why it's happening and you can't understand why it's happening. If you are literally shutting down every Avenue to even get the side of one of the parties to the war. And that's more of just a comment than a question. But I don't know if you have anything to add to that because I, I don't know that that's that's incredibly alarming. Like even during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, there was ways for people to see what the Soviet Union was saying. And now it seems like we're going to be at a point where there's no way to see anything except for the U.S. and Ukrainian side. And, and it wasn't just seeing what the Soviet Union was saying. It was actually that it was considered valuable information. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, mm -hmm. Again, people understood the stakes and they understood that, you know, what it, it doesn't mean that you're siding with, with them. It doesn't mean that you're even embracing these arguments. But it's really important to know what they're saying because it may give you some insights into what their motivations are, into what they're thinking, and into what they might do next. And, and how to end it. Like, and that is it. scary. You know, maybe it's a different discussion, but I think social media plays a role here in the fact that it's actually private companies that are in the position of making these decisions. We're not just talking about some sort of, you know, broadcast or shortwave media um, or print publications. But, you know, I, the news yesterday, for instance, that Facebook was lifting their restrictions on calls for calls for, you know, for death of uh, Vladimir Putin and Russian soldiers from users in a number of European countries. I find that really, that raises a lot of serious questions. What is Facebook doing? Why would you lift those policies? What is the point of this exactly? Where are you going with this? And it seems like, seems yeah, like sorry, go ahead. Yeah. 
Well, I was just going to say, it seems like on some level, and this is just speculation, these companies are trying to just like appease the US government because they don't want to be regulated. Like, it's like, okay, like just kind of preemptively give them what they want. They're obviously being guided by like the Atlantic Council and these sort of other hawkish think tanks that are, you know, that want like to censor entire opinions about anything that isn't hawkish on the one hand, but also it's all, it seems also like a way to kind of get Congress like off our backs so that we never have to really answer to the fact that we're private companies who literally own the entire means of communication. <laughs> I, I, think that's, I think that's a really big part of it. And I think there's also maybe an even more sinister component, which is just their business. You know, yeah. they want engaged users, outrage sells. They have a lot of very angry users in Europe right now, understandably, to be clear. Uh, and they're like, you know what? These users aren't going to be engaging with our platform if they can't say what they're thinking. And what they're thinking right now involves violence toward Russian soldiers and Vladimir Putin. Again understand where that comes from but you know they had previously said that's something we don't want on our platform because well we think societally that might not be a good thing the platform um and now they've said well you know maybe that's it's it's an important part of our business now that we can't continue <laughs> to restrict that but it does worry me about just to take it again sort of second and third order consequences okay so people get to say what they think on facebook involving calling for you know violence and death which previously, again, I probably for good reasons have been something they'd said, hey, as a business decision, we don't want that on our platform, even <laughs> if they weren't enforcing it as well as they could have. Um, but, you know, just because people are saying it, it, you're not allowed to, to do that in the United States or in other countries. It's really just these European countries that apparently have now lifted those restrictions on saying it. Presumably that content will still get over here. Um, and now you have basically injected more violence, more discussion of violence, more discussion of, of, of killing world leaders uh, into the, the social media discourse. Um, and there has been a corporate decision by Facebook that this is something that they're going to permit, at least for the time being. Um, I think that's really dangerous because we've seen certainly in the past several years, all sorts of dangerous roles that social media have played around the world in, in violence and in undermining democracy and so on and so forth. Um, and this seems like a move in the wrong direction. Uh, it's a scary one. And, and it really does concern me that it, it's not just a matter of that these companies have decided that we're gonna shut out uh, Russian media voices that may have at least given people insights into what um, the Russians are thinking, uh, but now we're also going to permit calls for violence against Russians. Um, I don't see a way that this doesn't have uh, you know, a consequence in 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 the, the views and, and even policies advocated for by, by users of these platforms. Well, thanks, Eli. Uh, you've been really generous with your time, and we really appreciate being able to talk with you. I think uh, this is an important, uh, wide-ranging discussion that has to be permissible um, in, our, in our media and uh, also on our social media, I would say. I hope that we can continue to have these kinds of discussions uh, and I'll just say for people that if they want to find your work, you're over at responsiblestatecraft.org. And uh, once again, you are with the Quincy Institute. And uh, you can find you, anyone who wants to find Eli, is, you're on Twitter at Eli Clifton. So thank you for being part of this conversation. Thanks so much for having me.